Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey gang, it's your weekly episode of Ranching Reboot. CK has known today's guest for quite a long time, and she has to take the lead on this one, and I was more than happy to let her. So here we go with Brittany Colebush. Hi Cole, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Um, I'm, I thought I was going to be uh, on the tail end of my grazing season, and it seems like I'm just in the middle. <laughs> right. So, Things are crazy um, right now, but I am, you know, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm yeah. Thrilled. Could I, you just for our listeners? So, so we have Brittany Colebush today. Uh, so wonderful grazer and a beautiful person. Uh, so, could you tell us where you're where you're located mainly, and, and like what what do you do for the most part? I know you have a lot of other enterprises, but the main one uh, that you, that you're, you're you're concentrated on. Sure. I'll just introduce myself. Uh, my name is Brittany Cole Bush. I go by Cole or BCB, and I am the owner-operator of Shepherdess Land and Livestock, and we are a prescribed grazing business out of the uh, Ojai Valley in Southern California, about an hour and 20 minutes north of Los Angeles. Um, we, we don't just graze uh for hire but uh we also have an education and training wing for next generation grazers and um, i also consult with private and public land managers and owners on how we can holistically steward land and how animals are a part of that and you have quite a team that you work with right that you manage yeah um so in my passion and pursuits, kind of weaving together all of the projects that I've had over the course of my career of 11 years now, uh, not just in, not just grazing, uh, managing a contract grazing business early on in my career, but going into education and training and developing this project called Grazing School of the West, really my passion has been how do we support next generation grazers that come from traditional backgrounds, right? So part of my business is that training, that training piece. And I've been able to informally, not thinking I was going to actually launch my my actual training wing of the business. This year, we've jumped into training and I've built out a really incredible team of, uh, of shepherds and, we're creating a really dynamic way of how how people can work on the land, learn at the same time, and also have lives outside of being, you know, in the sheep camp. Right, because that, that does exist, right? There's some misconceptions that that's not a thing. 
well, we have to make it a thing or this isn't yes. going to work. So I'm trying to practice what I preach and my, all my shepherd team. I mean, we're, we're a family and we, you know, my number one motto in my business is no burnout. And that requires all of us to take care of each other and remind each other that we need to hydrate, you know, heat exhaustion is a big thing. And so one of the things is like, no burnout means we have to make sure we're all hydrated, but then also hydrated in like heart and hydrated in social interaction and hydrated in, you know, all of the passions and things that we love outside of our work. So, um, yeah, I think quality of life is really important when we think about regenerative anything. Yes. And I think what we're doing right now is redefining how we can be in agriculture and in land stewardship. And um, quality of life is everything. And, and of course, I, I have a lot of work to do around that, CK, because, you know, I'm a... I, I'm a single owner operator of this, managing a big team of people and animals. Um, so, and I have another business. So, right, I, practice what you're preaching, right? Yeah, so you yeah. have to learn how to be the beacon for what you're what you're wanting to to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, taking time to enjoy the things that I love outside of what I do on the daily has been really important, and I'm trying to find that work life balance. And I think that's really important to talk about as much as the technical and practical things about, uh, our business. Uh, I think that the, that quality of life piece is really important, especially if we want to attract new people, more people into this work and bridge urban and rural through this work. Right. Do you think there's some small actionable things that other ranchers who may not have this culture set in place could like it's any advice for them of like what they could start thinking of doing or maybe like even I think a lot of times that ranchers are just so busy or anyone who's in livestock that they are they're not thinking of how they can make these changes and they think it's a huge overhaul and and I think maybe that's not the case mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a really good question my answer to that is, right <laughs> my answer to that is Uh, An invitation to be a part of a cultural change Uh and awareness and and calling out um, our own judgments of basically this. Traditionally, it's mad respect for the rancher who hasn't stopped working in 20 plus years. You know, the person who works the hardest and the most is the person who is going to get to the top or has been at the top or whatever, you know, or the, like has the most respect. Maybe that was the, the story a couple generations ago, but what if we actually commend and applaud our comrades who are exhibiting what we want in our lives, such as time off where it's right. like, what you went away for a three day weekend with your family fishing Awesome. Awesome. You know, instead of making a judgment like, well, what, what the heck they were on a contract in the middle of, you know, San Francisco, how, why were they gone? It's like, instead of judging someone or an outfit that isn't, you know, doing status quo, but like celebrating that. And I found 
that that has been really helpful and that my team thinks higher of me when I take time off, even if it's like four hours to myself, they're like, way to go. You're doing it, you know? And and I think that that, that's something, I think that's something that we can do. That's a practical thing that anybody in this work can do is just say is, is like applaud and encourage and support this change in our our agriculture. I was, I was listening to another, another podcast and he's talking about gratitude and just like living your life with just small gratitude every day. And like, it's, it's even in the way that you frame how you say things like, like, Oh, I have to go to work. You should say, no, I get to go to work. Like there's people who probably don't get that privilege. Right. Or, you know, so if you, if you frame it that way, then that energy is just transferred to a more positive impact instead of, um, like, Oh, I need to take time off. I'm so tired. It's like, Oh, I, I get to take time off. That's something that I actually can allow to myself mm-hmm. and not feel guilty about it. Cause I feel like there's just so much guilt and shame around, uh, work-life balance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And I think that that language is so important and, and, uh, and just how, yeah, exactly how we frame, how we frame things in communication to right. anyone else around us, but ourselves, you know, having affirmative, affirmative uh, yes. ways of saying things. I mean, it, you know, that we're getting esoteric in the like a manifestation, but I totally believe that. I totally believe that if we embody what we would like to achieve or what we would like to be in something that that it becomes more familiar and we are basically priming 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 the soil for positive the conditions for good things to grow right i think that i like that and and i i i think i I think we adopt that attitude in general is just like how do I make this? How do I lead by example? And yeah. I'm stoked about doing the hard things. It's really hard to, especially if you're like, if you're in a rush and you don't have time to really like do it, like I call them body scans where you're really understanding where your tune is like today. Um, sometimes I go back to old behaviors or just reactions where I'm just like, Oh, like this person's making me angry. And so my attitude towards that is negative. And so I think a lot of times you just have to reset and realize what is this coming from? Is this like old generational, um, traditional kind of behaviors or even habits that I'm, I'm trying to break. Um, yeah. So if we can backpedal just a little bit, I want to know, how you got into ag is it 11 years ago is what you said. How did you get involved with doing the targeted grazing for, for fire management and, and, and just getting involved If you, you said you had a non-traditional background. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'm going to do my best to be brief on this because I yeah. feel like <laughs> I talk a lot about my past and how I got into this. I think it's yeah. for new folks in this, but I'm more excited about the present and the future. Um, yes especially because it was so long ago I'm right you know, we we m- morph into so many different things as we engage with the world and new contexts 
But essentially, the long and short of it is, is that I've been on a meandering journey, but very, very, very clear that my calling has been to be what I call a modern day shepherdess, you know, shepherding animals, people and projects. And it's been a very dynamic journey. Um, I am a non-traditional agrarian. I grew up in Southern California in a beach town, um, you know, in North County, San Diego. I'm the oldest of six daughters. And, um, geez, you know, I my passion has always been culture and preserving culture in a rapidly developing world. And my my big kind of question in, in defining that for myself has led me to many different places around the world. And when I was 19 years old, I wasn't ready for college. And I had the opportunity to work my butt off and go to Africa. I went to Tanzania, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and for the first time, got to really see pastoralism in in practice with the Maasai people. And I think that was kind of where the seed was planted. Right. I, mean, I think that the seed was already there, CK. Like, it was like, oh, yeah, the, like somewhere inside me, pastoralism is a part of my story, but yeah. that's kind of where it was fertilized and... Germinated, right? Germinated, yeah. And, and then the last 10 years has been watering that seed. Yeah. To, you know, be where I'm at now. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the, the baseline of it. I, my, my travels and education, uh, in agroecology led to holistic management and really diving into holistic management practice. And mm-hmm. um, I became accredited professional and trainer with the Savory Institute and have done some work with HMI and, uh, have been able to practice on the ground early on in my, um, my career, uh, becoming the project manager and helping to start up a larger contract grazing business called Star Creek Land Stewards um, in the early 2010s. And um, we were grazing in big urban spaces in the Bay Area in California. And that's kind of where I got my start on the ground in project management and having grazing animals like right right there on the urban periphery. Um, And after Star Creek Land Stewards, just really wanting to see how I could answer this question, the new question, how do we preserve culture in a rapidly, you know, developing world? How do we create pathways for new people to have meaningful and work? Because that's where culture is tied to food as well. Right. Yes. So, then I really got into wanting to learn about how different countries are around the world are training their next generation of practitioners on the ground with animals, transhumans and pastoralism and things like that. Um, a mentor of mine, Fred Provenza. Fred, you are awesome. Thank you. His book. We want um, him on. Please come. Yeah, we'll get him on. The <laughs> Art of Wisdom of Shepherding became kind of my Bible. And um, through the support of him and his co-author, Michelle Murray, I was able to go to, sorry if I butchered your name, Michelle. Um, I was able to go to Spain and France to uh, investigate the shepherding schools yeah uh all over 
the Spain and France that was out, that were outlined in the book. And big question there was, how do we, can we learn from those schools and yeah. the West? And um, so education became a big thing. And it's been a huge quandary of, in our context of the West, can we replicate or learn from how they do it there? The answer is, what I found in, in, in you know, uh, developing my project, Grazing School of the West, it does not work the way that it works there. It, it, we can't. We have a totally different structure. What are some and, of the What are some of the differences? Oh, hi, Ryan. Sorry, I talk and I realize I need to shut up so you guys can interview. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> um. So what I what what I realized that some of well some of the biggest differences are is in our educational system and in our healthcare system and how we are set up to really struggle in in the United States the way we come out of school with a lot of debt right yes. awesome not everybody yes. can get out of school with a lot of debt we also don't have universal health care. Health care is very expensive for us. So right off the bat, the cost of living is much higher than the cost of living, say, for those in Spain or France. Education is subsidized greatly, and, and is so is uh, health care. So their cost of living is a lot lower. And I... I can, cannot see how somebody who graduates from the University of California with maybe twenty to sixty to hundred thousand dollars worth of debt can go and take two years in a working apprenticeship right. with that much overhead. How can you grave in an urban periphery when the cost to live in the urban periphery? is so high. How can you ever afford to buy anything if you can't make a salary that will allow for you to put money away? It just, it absolutely doesn't work the same way. And so I've had a really hard time wanting to go out into the world and train people on how to get into this until I have tested the model in my own business. And, and that is really what has manifested my my business shepherdess land and livestock is like it's a proof of concept in, in, yeah in, so it won't discourage anyone right i like to say yeah. everything's experimental until it's not yeah everything's a, pro- a pilot project until it's uh-huh. Not. Uh-huh. Yeah. so so part of the um you know grazing in urban areas and the education piece that you do i'm assuming do you educate a lot of urban people who who um, who want to know more about agricultural practices? So, not in a formalized way at this point. Maybe just like onlookers, or well, so I'll give you an example. Okay. Uh, social media does incredible things by weird algorithms and yes. scenes of people through people. So, yeah. Uh, I think I've had I've had exposure to audiences I don't think that most ranchers or rural agrarians have because of my integration in uh, urban spaces. I lived in Los Angeles. I've lived in San Francisco. Before yes. I moved to the Ojai Valley, I was in Los Angeles. 
Um, I was training in stunt performance, um, really focusing on horseback riding for stunts because I needed something, you know, activated and wild when I wasn't chasing sheep and goats in the urban space. But I think that by being an urban like city dweller and also being someone tied into our regenerative ag community and and you know i also i sit in the radical center i also have a lot of community and conventional ag as well uh, i just have gathered a really cool diverse group of friends and and people i know and and artists and musicians and tech people and parents and homesteaders and you know i think that that uh I think that living in the urban space has really helped to open and broaden um, the the audience and scope and scale of, of of people getting to know about this. And social social media has been a big part of that. But then also just being out in the world, um, conversations are pretty cool. Yeah, that emerge and. You know, it's always like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, shoot, do we have like an hour? <laughs> do I give you the um, abridged version or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so do I just say I'm a cattle rancher or a use or a carbon cycling technician? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I am. Oh, gosh. Yeah, there's so many ways you can spin it. Um, right. Totally. I So back to the herb, like urban how do you the education of non-traditional like has that been a demand from people like i guess is like are people really curious do they seeing all these absolutely so in the first year of my grazing um i've had the opportunity to collaborate with the ojai valley fire safe council and the fire safe council is driving initiatives for community driven community supported ways to create uh, fire safety and resilience in the valley and the main initiative the community supported grazing program um, that I'm also directing has been a really cool way to get information out about how animals can participate in managing our open spaces Ojai Valley burned um the, the periphery of Ojai burned in the Thomas fire in 2017. And that really was a wake up call to the community and brought a lot of people together. And the, uh, the fire safe council is really working to take that energy from the community and, and, and push for really impactful projects. And this is, this project is one of them. So this was our first demonstration year we did over five different demonstration sites with community stakeholders in some of the largest open space in OHOC. And one of the coolest projects we did is um, on an open space. I think it was a few hundred acres. We demonstrated on, uh, I personally graze about, oh gosh, 25, 30 acres. And then another local grazer, shout out Ventura Brush Goats, um, did the other uh, did another 30 or so. And that open space um, at the Krishnamurti Foundation of America was is the client. Um, it's the open space that everybody sees coming into Ojai. It's like the main artery coming into Ojai. And as you can imagine, 
during COVID, people are fleeing the city on the weekends to go and experience nature, and they come to Ojai. And the first thing that they see uh, over the course of, um, we were there for several weeks, but uh, over there, we were there on the 4th of July weekend, and thousands and thousands of people were passing our flocks of, our herd of sheep and goats. And I would say that that time, the shepherds, like one of their biggest, their biggest jobs during the day was just like chatting it up with people who'd stop and take pictures and ask questions. And we're just like so excited and exhilarated to see these animals and curious, like people are really curious, like what is going, like, what is this? Like, why are you doing this? And I think just exposure and people seeing it right there is like the biggest educational opportunity and having a shepherd on site who can explain and really be a liaison or an advocate or an educator is, is super key to spreading this because now just through conversation, conversations proliferate and, and if children are interested, their parents are going to know about it. And then their Finding parents the are going to right? yeah. yeah. So it's like, for me, it's like, teach the kids, get the kids really excited about seeing the animals and the parents will follow. And it's just, it's so cool to see that we are bridging. We're making, we're making links just by being in areas that there is a, there are a ton of people coming through. I think, um, you know, I'm a California native as well. And so I seeing all these fires every year, it just seems like it gets worse and worse. And um, I'm really excited to see the impact that will happen with what you're doing at a local level. And I really hope that other communities just kind of take what you're doing and, and want to model that out and scale so that, so that we can get California in a little bit better shape as far as how the forest lands and, and vegetation is being managed. Here, here. Well, that's, yeah, I, you nailed it. I mean, that's, that's the goal of this program. Yeah. There are fire safe councils all over the state. There are fire districts all over the state. It, what we're doing is we're documenting our process in developing a model that can be And including used. stakeholders, the actual policy probably makers. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes, we have the Ojai mayor uh, supporting. We have uh, we have our county supervisor supporting. We have the local Ventura Fire Department, the fire district supporting. We have the local land conservancy supporting, and a myriad of private landowners and nonprofits. That's exactly what we need to do. The bottom line is, fire and natural disasters don't give a damn about board of um, property lines they don't watersheds don't care you know it, it so you know we have to think beyond fences <laughs> yeah you know, we have to break down borders and boundaries and recognize that we are all a part of localized watersheds and ecologies that uh there are there are dynamics that we need to recognize if we're going to meet all of we're going to meet the challenges of natural disaster we have to band together and we have to stitch acres together in our approaches for land management and so that's the community approach in getting stakeholders well that is my 
you need to answer it, you can answer it. It's always interesting to see who who's who's calling in the middle of the day uh, when you have sheep and goats in public spaces. Um, I got a I got a shepherd, so we're good. Let's see, let's see what the shepherd said. One sec. That's kind of like a cows on the highway call, but maybe a little bit worse. Man, yeah, goats in your garden or goats <laughs> in the vineyard? Heck, no. Um, actually, goats getting out can give you good press. We got on the front page of the newspaper um, a couple months ago, and it was really great because it got spun in a really nice way. Um, nice. But the neighbors loved it. I mean, the neighborhood got, like, people ran out of their houses and were herding the sheep and goats. Unfortunately, my shepherd and I weren't far off, and so we were there at moments. Um but the community was stoked. The, the the local police officer was stoked too. I said, "Hey, hey, would you would you take the back while you know behind the herd while we go down two lanes and just make sure we're good?" And then I had I was in the front, and uh, it was like a parade. It was like a total parade of neighbors. And that article was great. It talked about what we were doing and how to support because we're going to have a fall fundraiser called a Goat Fund Me. Okay. Um, for neighbors more about that yes 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 oh gosh you could sorry not to interrupt you but i definitely want to plug that yeah (laughs) we got uh we got a shepherd on duty and we're all good um so a part of the community supported grazing program effort is how do we create resilience and funding for the grazing services and all of the things that need to be done for the grazing services to work, which is um, partnering with a local nonprofit called The Crew, and it uh, trains youth uh, on really hard hand clearing work, really, quite honestly. It's just like what happens after fire cleanup, um, a lot of mechanical hand crew stuff. So we can work with this nonprofit. They can do a lot of fence clearing for us. We can build fence, and then we can graze. So part of our, what one of our big needs is, is we need money to work with the nonprofit and to pay for the grazing services. So we are looking at different ways to fundraise and create that resilient funding mechanism that's year after year. There's a lot of money at state level for fire prevention. So the Fire Safe Council is able to apply for those grants and we'll get grants and such. And then... Uh, we want the community to adopt this and have and have um, stakeholders into this. And and one way to do that is if you put money towards something, then you're you know you're going to want to care about something if you're paying for it. Right. Um, our goal is if we raise uh, money from our community, we are going to be able to graze more acres. So it's not just the landowners who can afford the grazing. But it can, the cost will be mitigated and spread through a multitude of properties instead of just one here, one there, one there. And the cost can be reduced because we are not transporting animals on trucks and trailers. Instead, we're just herding them. And as we, by herding them instead of putting them on trucks and trailers, it, we're saving a lot of money and we're saving, we're, you know, Probably less stress too, right? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Less stress on the animals. Us herders love it. People love it. Um, It's Price of gas. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Less carbon use. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you can, you can list all of the issues. Yes. It's going to take a long time to stitch together the whole entire corridor around the Valley, but already because of our success this year, I've been very hopeful that our fundraising campaign is going to be successful. We'll raise enough money where we can graze in areas. It's almost like grazing for all. Some people can't afford the grazing uh, and some people can, but if your neighbor isn't doing the fire clearance that you're doing, right. you know, it, it, it benefits everybody if everybody's in, you know? So we are looking at different strategies for the fundraising where it's localized for neighborhoods. So a neighborhood will pitch into a neighborhood pot of gold for grazing. And then mm-hmm. another neighborhood will pitch in for their niche. And one of the work with the Fire Safe Council is actually doing, um, it's called fine mapping, fine priority mapping. So we're looking at the uh, um, behavior of fire. If it was to come through the valley, how would it, how would it act in our geography um, uh, and geology and all of the kind of, it's a valley. So it has a lot right. of. Annually. How will it travel and stuff? How will it travel? Yeah. And then what are our, what are the prizo- priority zones? If a fire yeah. come, where would this fire clearance be the most impactful? And by doing that, then we are being scrupulous with the resources and putting the grazing at first in the places that are the most important and the most impactful. Is there a way we can uh, support this fundraiser? Like, is it a, is there a way to like donate or anything like that? Uh, absolutely. So we will be having a big outreach campaign in the fall and winter of right. this year. Okay. And a part of that, the hope the hope is is that we get the word out, but not just about what Ojai is doing, but get the word out about this model that is developing. Yes. And by supporting the development of the model, we'll be able to create uh, essentially assets that other other uh, communities can take, kind of like a blueprint or a roadmap of, you want to start one of these here, this is what you need to do. And this is how we did it. And even to the very structure of a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. These are the elements that you need. You're going to need your maps. You're going to need your key stakeholders identified. You're going to need to do a pilot project. Yes. You're going to need, you know, all of these things. If we can fund the, that groundwork, that baseline development with greater minds uh, than just a couple of grazers and some fire safe council guys, then um, then then we'll be able to help other communities do this. And that's really, it's like, Teach the folks to fish and they'll be able to feed the people, right? So Amen. I, yeah. We need we need a lot more grazers. I think that there's a lot of room for smaller localized grazing operations. And the only way they can be viable is if there's if there's consistency and security with localized contracts mm-hmm. and keeping animals in the keeping in the animals in the valley off trucks. I need to make sure that I have enough work season, all season or all year for that matter, um, to make it work. And I would love to see this type of model adopted in other places and and folks recognize the true value of this, that it's not just fire hazard prevention, but it's ecological stewardship. Yes. Okay. So a little tangent, because I get so 
annoyed by this conversation that I have with some of my my ranchers who who only want to do cattle, right? Um, they'll complain about like having brush encroachment or they have like an invasive species that's probably like a forbed area. And I'm like, your solution is goats. Like get some goats. And it's just always, uh, you know, I think we all know it's a huge stigma around using goats or sheep, but they, they definitely do a different job than, than what cattle do. What they're complaining about is, is what goats are born to do as being these browsers, right? So um, I definitely would love to see that because I think that's a way for the ecological way we, we, we take care of the land is even if it's just, and not to oversimplify it, but like rent some goats for, for a short duration of time, that's not them committing to owning goats, but, but they do need goats on their land to fix these issues. Um, I think, Brian, do you have that conversation with people too? All the time. I mean, people yeah. would rather, rather hire goats. a spray plane to come out and spray poison you know, from the air cost hundreds of, you know, a lot of dollars an acre rather than find somebody that will bring their goats out and sheep out to manage the brush problem and in all likelihood might even end up paying the landowner for the privilege. You know, so people want an easy answer, you know, and a lot of times that easy answer is, you know, is the chemical in a, con- in a container. You can't buy good management or soil health or fire in a box at the farm store, and that's why that's why those things just aren't necessarily done. And yeah, Cole, I know I said fire as a management tool, and we're talking about using goats as a fire mitigation tool, but you know, fire is is one of those management tools that's context appropriate. Right. I am a huge fan of prescribed birds mm-hmm. uh, in conjunction with prescribed grazing. I think together they're beautiful combo and I would love to see the, I believe there's a future where prescribed burns are going to be much more there. We're going to see more of them in California. We just need to be supportive of a cultural shift. Yes. Fear of fire. We get to do fires instead of, yeah, yeah, we get to do fires. (laughs) It's it's a cultural shift where we need to go back to this, um, Oh gosh, I love this um, concentric ecology. You know, we need to we need to look at how our culture can adopt more holistic viewpoints and relationships to uh, the the challenges that we have. And if we if we can work towards changing fear of fire into understanding that we live in a fire ecology and we need to work with the earth to make more resilient systems for humans to live on earth, then we need to uh, be empowered by the use of fire and by working with fire and and, and respecting fire and respecting our fire ecologies, we're going to make, we're going to make a lot of, we're going to make a lot of change that needs to happen. And post-fire grazing, it goes, it's hand in hand. And Brian, you're totally right. There are many tools and many approaches, and we need to look at all of them. And there are different contexts in which they work. I go to property sometimes and I'm like, goats won't be the best thing here. Sheep isn't going to yeah. be the best thing here. 
And, and it's important to, to set yourself up for success as a grazer and know your context and know what your animals can and can't do and know what your people can do. You know, I've made the choice to take on contracts that were uh, easier in scope um, in terms of fence building and various challenges because we, quite frankly, the animals and the people needed a moment to breathe before we jumped into the next contract. Because again, it's, it's about endurance, quality of life. And if we can maintain our, our being, us being stoked on the job, then we're going to be able to do more work longer in the year. We're going to be working, you know, hopefully through middle to end of November or whenever rain starts, Hopefully it's like tomorrow, but yes. before rain starts, we're going to be working. If we didn't have downtime, if each of us didn't have the opportunity to go and get some time and some reflection, then we wouldn't be able to push. Um, so that is a super important piece. But um, yes, <laughs> the tools and approaches and fire and changing culture, um, cultural perception, those are all such important pieces of this. Um, and and that also includes cattlemen and cattlewomen and just cattle people not being allergic to goats and goat grazing. Right. In fact, I like that. Yeah. For, for my cattle for my cattle friends out there, why don't you go take a, a look at the market and how, what are goats bringing? To That's the what I'm telling them. I say they're saying. making the money. You're just. I'm just saying. How 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 fast? Is, you know, what's our what's our gestation period? You know, it's like how how fast can I'm just saying. No, you're 100%. Hey, ground ground up usually. goat meat is like, I don't know, I, I, 16 to 20 bucks a pound is what I usually see it for. Um, and, you know, then there's something else like that. The hides aren't the hides. Mm-hmm. Some of the hides were something. Goat hides. Sheep uh, hides. Sheep hides. Yeah. Well, oh, okay. The sheep industry is a whole other thing. Right now, the market's pretty great uh, for sheep. It is probably the sheep industry is like one of the most volatile industries to be in. You mean like leather, not like wool, right? Or hair. What are we talking about? We're talking about like value added. Oh, like what what value there is for sheep for sheep and goat hides? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, I'm, I'm in the business of sheep hides. I also right. sell okay. goat hides. Um, my other business is called Shepherdess Holistic Hides, and we use a byproduct from the commercial, uh, you know, meat, uh, yeah, conventional meat processing byproduct of a whole bunch of sheep hides. And, um, they are often bailed and shipped off to China or in, because of political things over the last several years, the, value the market for cheap hides the salted skins have gone just it's just dropped and so unfortunately there's been a lot of what do we do with these things we have to incinerate them or compost them and but they're absolutely beautiful things to have in the home everybody loves a sheep skin i mean it's timeless humanity has evolved with the skins of animals so right i'm i'm finding that my sheep hide business is, I mean, that's what's carried me to even start my grazing business is this value-added product from the sheep and goat industry. Um, so thank you, sheep. I mean, I'm selling sheep hides more than a sheep on hoof. And uh, and I'm not buying the sheep hides salted for, 
you know, fraction of a cost. So, um, yeah, they're very valuable. The, we have a lot of processing challenges, just like in the meat industry and our processing opportunities are slim, you know, our niche meat processing is very limited and so is our tanning uh, and ecologically sound tanning. And a lot of tanning is from, you know, goes overseas where there's not environmental regulation or public safety regulation that and a lower cost of labor. Yes. Lower cost of labor. I think we all need to just get prepared that every, we're going to be paying more money for everything. That's just, if we need to look at true value of things, we need to really start looking at quality of what we buy, not quantity of what we buy and look at like where where did this stuff come from? You know, right. what is it going to do when we not when we don't use it anymore? Uh, and I like my sheep hides because I know that someday it's just going to go back into the earth and and do what you know a dead animal would do in nature. Yes. It it's just gonna it's it's just gonna you know do the thing. And I think that looking at not just the food system but the fiber system is going to be equally if not more important um because the apparel industry has been traditionally one of the most wasteful and resource intensive you know industries in the world and it's there's a big push for that to change and Um, when you throw in modern synthetic fabrics that are made with petroleum products it makes it even worse that are in Wales, it's just, yeah, I don't want to go down that whole thing. I just actually want to talk about how awesome goats are. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, okay. I did want to say, I did want to say to the audience who do run cattle, who do have an allergy towards goats, um, there are opportunities for grants for cost share of using prescribed grazing to address invasive species encroachment on your property. That is through USDA programs through the NRCS called the Conservation Stewardship Program. And, and I believe the EQIP program, that, I think it's more the Conservation Stewardship Program, but they have listed prescribed grazing uh, as a, a tool or approach that they will support in a cost share because they recognize the efficacy of prescriptive grazing to reduce and manage encroachment of invasive species, which is absolutely necessary if we're going right. to talk about supporting the integrity of uh, resilience in our ecologies and our range and our operations. So cattle folks, you can get money to hire us grazers. And I did want to make a correction, Brian, that, I think the cow grazers are going to want us to go in places that are hard to go. And I'm not, yeah. hungry, I'm not hungry enough to pay them for me to do some really intensive labor. Cause we have to set up fences or we have to do day circuits. Grazing yeah. and shepherding. That, you know, every single day of the year, shepherd is being paid. We're not like, we're going to round up twice, you know, twice a season or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I know my cattle folks hats off to Sam Ryerson and, Ariel Greenwood in Montana, I just went to visit and holy heck, they, they interact every single day with their cattle. But I do know operations where they let the cattle out and they're gone for a long time. They don't see their cattle for months 
once a year, right? Yeah, once a year. Columbus-style management. You turn them loose, then go discover them six months later. Yeah, right, and see how close they get. I'm okay. This is a secret to everybody. Uh I'm getting. It's it's not going to be a secret for long if you say it on this podcast. I know. This is uh, (laughs) this is my client. Do you want to hear in on on this conversation? Can I can I pick it up? Yeah, we can always edit out later. Okay. I'm actually, uh, funny enough, I'm on a podcast right now, um, so I'm not cooking you any goat meat for lunch, that's for sure. Yeah, I just want to make sure the sheep and goats are in. Okay, cool. I look forward to catching up. I'm excited to hear what we came up with for the planting plan. All right, sweet. Talk to you soon. It's so great when you're, you're buddies with your clients, you know, we're, we're working on this vernal pool restoration and this post fire, um, grazing. And and that's my, the, the grounds manager of the property is my partner in it because he's going to be the one who's maintaining the, the plantings after we go, but we're intensively grazing, fertilizing, planting, and then we're going to come back successionally every year. Um, so that's what, that call was about he wanted to follow up on on our conversations and what that we had about planting um so thank you oh that's fine i mean it was it's kind of relevant content and you know i i think we we can all understand what it's like to get those phone calls at you know that phone call can come at any time of day cows on highway your sheep are in the garden you know it's it's just one of those things we, we've got to deal with. And, and thanks for sharing that little bit with us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's real. The, the, the thing I have to say about folks who are either interested in prescribed grazing or grazing in more public areas, um, it's going to be really important to have somebody on your team or for you to personally develop patient communication skills and recognize that it is absolutely imperative to find humanity in every single person you interact with and try to find patients and just recognize your job is going to go so much easier if you find a way to effectively communicate and hold your cool when you are so frustrated. Um, because folks just don't really know a lot of the things that are that are going on, you know. It's like where those animals don't have water, and it's like actually go look, look, see that tank and see that hose. Yeah, I just I just heard a story of that by my comrade grazer Michael Light of Ventura Brush Goats. He gets these calls like, "Your guard, do- there's dead dogs in your paddock," and it's like. Do you know guard dogs, they work all night and then they sleep all day and they sleep on the job and that's just what they do. It's like, yep. they'll clap your hands five feet next to them and he'll wake up and he'll be like, what's up, you know? Uh, or like neighbors, I have a neighbor at my home base. She complains about guard dogs barking and I say, they're doing their job, but I will move them and the animals a little bit further away, although we live in the valley. So, you know, everything everything <laughs> traveled like and sound. sound effects. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I, and I totally, I sympathize with her. I'm like, Oh, I seriously, 
I just can't function when I don't sleep. So I, I totally right. agree. You. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best to, to ensure that the dogs aren't barking all night for no reason. But then I also have to say, but they are doing a job. And the one time that after many nights of her not, you know, being upset about the dog barking, I clip up the dogs. And what happens? We have our first kill. We have our first kill, coyote kill. And I told her, I'm like, I can't do this. This is zoned rural ag. I know you moved to, from L.A. so you could live in the country and have peace and quiet. But this is an agricultural. Yeah. You know, this there is are country cool. noises yeah. in the country. Yeah, honestly, it's, though, I mean, I've had I've worn earplugs at night sometimes when you know harvest is going yeah. on and there's you weaning and there's bawling calves. Like I've totally done that. Like I I get that, but there's other solutions than just saying I can't stand the dogs barking. You can get oh, earplugs. Yeah. Well, you can it's, soundproof your room. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I probably you know I, it's management. I can move. Yeah. our home base, uh, our sacrificial paddock. Uh, or with a hard fence is very close to, you know, close to the property line. In retrospect, we got to think about design to mitigate BS like neighbor complaints. So what do I do? I move, I try to move the the dogs and the animals, but then I get donkey thinking, okay, the donkeys aren't going to bark. Well, then I get a text. Like I just picked up a dog, another donkey on Monday and get a text on Tuesday saying, your donkeys are foghorns in the, at two in the morning. You need to move your donkeys. I'm like, I got the donkeys so the dogs wouldn't bark. I don't know what to tell you, lady. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but the donkeys are going to stay because they are my emotional support animals. If anything, that is the most important thing. <laughs> if the boss isn't happy and doesn't get her donkey time, then everything goes out the window. But anyways... You know, I, but I'm trying, I try to be patient with her, recognize my neighbor. And we got to, you know, that going back to that, that that sentiment of nature, natural disasters, watersheds, you know, habitats, they don't care. The disconnect, right? Oh yeah. yeah. No, they don't care about property lines. So I have to manage as if the whole valley is a part of my context and, her and and it also includes the human factor and we need to find some sort of cohesion so more can get done if 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 we are in good terms with our neighbors you know and that's hard but we need to do that that's just crucial yeah i i just want to repeat to some of our listeners is is it's it's okay that there's conflict but I love what you did is like, hey, I hear you. I validate that you're not sleeping and that sucks not sleeping. However, they are doing their job and then X, Y, and Z, right? So it's like, that's that's one way I think I've learned that works with anyone who's grumpy and, and wanting to put on that customer support hat, you know, and being more patient with people is like, hey, I hear you. I get that you're dealing with other things and, and this is the last thing you want to do is have an issue. Um, but it is blah, blah, blah. You know, it's always just like, you have to almost like just kind of repeat back what they just said to you. And they're like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Nonviolent communication skills. Yeah. Yeah. We do, we do have to, we do have to validate, you know, when we have to, you know what, when I start getting frustrated, I have, 
I'm really trying hard to think about what is the outcome that I want and how do I have to behave to get closer to the outcome I want? Right. Not because if I react, that's sometimes putting fuel on the fire and most likely they're not going to want to, you know, play nice with me if I am, you know, yeah, being defensive or whatever it may be. And, and I think that, I think that is comes down to, you know, just sound stockmanship. You know, if I, if I want my animals to be moving gracefully, then I have to be moving gracefully. Right. And if I want them to load, you know, if they, if I want them to behave, I have to behave, whatever behaving is like goat goats are another story. Um, but uh, good thing I'm like a goat um, because I get where they're coming from. Um, so, yeah, I really love that we kind of came to a place of the social dynamics and mm-hmm. how how important it is to address the how how important the social piece is because we absolutely need it in a changing world, especially in agriculture with succession, like family succession and looking yeah. at the next generation of who's coming into agriculture. It might be non-traditional folks. How do we communicate when we are different? You know, these are all really important questions that we need to be a part of answering. I want to talk about your hide business. So what are you doing with, with your hides? I think, I think I know the answer because I've seen some of your work. You, you make some pretty beautiful, I think Christine had a bag that you made for her. Oh yeah. Um, so I have the sheep hide business and we tan salted hides, hair on hides. We call right. hair on hides. It's wool. Uh, and we get them tanned. We work with three different tanneries around the West and then we sell them as whole hides, like yeah. beautiful whole hides. people use them for interiors and put babies on them, use them as rugs, put them on a car seat, whatever. I we could use a pair of chinks. Yeah, you could do that. I'm actually working on a, a new project making a saddle pad. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. So we're working to have traceability and where the hides come from. Yeah. And working with producers that are uh, climate beneficial certified through the Fiber Shed um, nonprofit. And climate beneficial is essentially working with producers that practice carbon farming practices. Right. Um, so I have the whole hives. I also have value added products like this sheep, the saddle pad. Um, I've done a line of, uh, of, um, beautiful pillows that are filled with wool. Um, people love the shoeing pillows. They're like, I, I hope, I mean, sheepskins kind of are trending forever because we've evolved with them. Right. Uh, but one of the, the reasons why I got into the sheep hides is because I'm a leather worker and I love to work my hands just like they're my hands are my favorite part of my body and my hands just when they're working I become in a flow state and I love working with leather and that is kind of what brought me to sheepskins is wanting to work with uh animal hide that I have some sort of connection to. And, um, my leather work I do 
right now is very minimal and very in, in custom, you know, one-off things. People hit me up to make something and um, I'll do it. And Christine Sue, I absolutely was going to make her something. And I sourced the, um, I sourced the leather, not, not wool, but leather from White Oak Pastures. And that made me really happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So I, I, I love think that. Yeah. yeah I, I, they I, source their leather to Timberland, right? It's like, you need to get a contract yeah, with Timberland. They, they're just starting a, yeah. They just started a regenerative leather line. And I think that more and more brands are getting sick. They should. Yes. Not just fiber, but leather is a big part. Um, I sit on a committee called the Regional uh, Fiber Manufacturing Initiative through the Fiber Shed program. And I'm contributing uh, and advising on how do we help revolutionize our uh, fiber system, but on the hides and leather end. And a lot of our holdup is processing and how do we support more tanneries and what are our limitations there? How do we move hides around? How do we get processors to get the finished hide that can be tanned? How do we, they essentially need to have they need to salt them. They need to dry them, salt them. You know, it's really hard to get processors to do that. Like you want to keep your hide, where are we going to put it? Like you got to come pick it up right now. And then you're stuck with salting it. And then you have to figure out how to get it there. And by the end you've, you've paid hundreds of dollars for shipping and hundreds of hours to figure out how to get one hide. It's just like, people think it's really cool to do as producers, but, but it's very hard to do. And so my business you know, Shepherdess Holistic Hides, I'm, I'm seeing a, a moment in time where I can help advise how to stitch together the per, whole production system. And yeah. that's going to have to start at the processor. We're going to have to get processors yeah. to integrate technologies that will support the hides getting finished uh, or readied for canning. And that in itself can be its own whole business or enterprise. Because you can yep. you can charge you can charge for for that service you know not ridiculous amounts but there's a if we really do want to look at traceable or regenerative whatever um, we have to be able to have the whole process follow the light the story the 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 lifetime of where this thing comes from to where it gets to. You know, the the lack of processing, it's that seems to be a constantly reoccurring theme, whether we're talking about sheep, goats, hides or cattle, um, you know, or even leather. Like, you know, it's hard to find a tannery. There's very few tanneries left. In the United Isn't States. Is it culture, though, Brian? Like, is it now that we're talking about what we talked about at the beginning of this episode is is because people don't want to work in a processing facility or is it because it's been so centralized that? I think it's because it's been so centralized. And I think that there's a part of it that, you know, it, it's not a clean process necessarily. Um, you know, does require some fairly ugly chemicals to do it at scale or it requires a lot of labor to do it. Um you know, to do a, a clean tanning process, like a brain tanning process, of course, you need the brain. And I think some of the, the you need the brain at least. And 
the hide. And that takes, you know, that's a labor intensive process. So, you know, it, all the, all the chemicals make it quicker to process, right? Mm -hmm. Takes less labor. They can do more at a time, but then those chemicals have their own environmental problems, right? Just like using fertilizer, right? Yeah, like, so it's, it's so it's a catch twenty two. Yeah. You know, we're we're using a lot of these synthetics where, you know, there's a natural solution. It just requires more human labor to get there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, then the problem becomes, okay, well, we everybody needs a living wage. Well, what does that really mean? You know, if the producers of food and the producers of, of fiber and of leather don't get them don't get a living wage. Uh, they're going to quit doing it, right? Mm. And and then what happens? You know, the answer is not going to be importing more of it from China. Mm-hmm. So there's we're at a strange intersection in history. Like, I mean, there, there's a lot of things happening right now, and a lot of things are changing at literally breakneck speed. And you know, I was just looking at the schedule. It's going to be probably about ten days before we release this. And the world could be a completely different place in 10 days. You know, the last 18 months have definitely showed us all that. So, you know, how do we square the needs, you know, the future needs of, of fiber and protein and land ecology with, quote, a living wage? How does that all square? And I, I don't have an answer. I really don't. I wish I did. Well, I think you brought both of you brought up really good points. BK, you know, you asked about, you know, you challenged is it is it that we don't want that there aren't people who want to be in the, on the kill floor? You know that that's a right. that's a good question. Uh, I think there that applies to do people want to live in a sheep camp twenty four seven three six and not see their families for three to five years on an HBA contract. I don't think domestic labor or like folks here want to do it. Uh, So what do we do? We have to change the job description to work for what our new context is socially. And we have to look at ways that if we can't afford to pay double overtime, then what are the other values exchanges that can be provided to incentivize somebody to do this type of work. And for me, the way I'm doing it with the awesome team I have is called a swing shepherd. We have a swing shift shepherd program. The shepherds are not full time. The shepherds come in on two, three or four day swing shifts and they kind of just bounce off one another and they get to go away and go and surf or go and go to the city where one of my, my uh, shout out to Dylan Boykin. He's my head shepherd and he lives in Los Angeles when he's not in the sheep camp. You know, it's like people need to go home and take a shower, refresh, go and do life and then come back and they're, they're ready to roll. I would say by day, Gosh, day seven in the sheep camp for me, I don't have a long tolerance anymore, but by day seven in a sheep camp, like you get the shepherd blues and everything changes. You're in like a totally different time continuum and going back into society doesn't work. 
the old the old school shepherds were usually kind of the the, the solo flying uh, folks in society that didn't fit into the main the you know the main community dynamics and I'm trying to challenge that with the swing shepherd idea where it's like if if the model of the traditional shepherd does not work anymore then let's change the job description to work and that means I have to change my business model to make it work because if you don't have labor then you don't have a business so again this is a part of this developing a new model testing it I'm sure there's a lot of people saying well that's not going to work for me well I'm good well not good but like I hear you then design something that will allow for a new way, a new job description to be designed to keep people there. And I promise you, sheep and goat producers out there looking for shepherds, I'm going to do my darndest to help train them and, and, and create some sort of throughput for folks to come to you. And I will make sure that they know the difference between a sheep and a goat before they get to you. And that's, um, and that's what you're trying to do with the Grazing School of the West, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's an interesting dynamic now that I have a working business and I also have a training program that I've developed right. with Olivia Tinconi through the fiber sh- support of the fiber shed um, organization. Again, um, shout out to fiber shed and uh, no regrets initiative for all of the support over the years. It's been a long project tons of interest and so many people come to the website, fill out the newsletter and, and come back, you know, four months later saying, what's new? How do I get in? And I'm like, I'm working on it. I promise. But the way, I, the only way I see this thing working is that there needs to be an opportunity for a working apprenticeship and the way to ready shepherds to go into different contexts of uh, outfits like about my buddy's chaos sheep outfit up in the north and they do tons of grazing in vineyards and orchards they do fire grazing as well they're one of the largest scale operators in the state their operation is very different than my two three hundred head operation then you have um you have big you know big range operations like piscinus ranch uh, you have Koyama lamb that is uh, running animals in Santa Barbara and they do fire grazing, but they're also producing wool and lamb. I think that a training shepherd needs to go to all of these dynamics. Why don't we throw some training shepherds out in the middle of nowhere too, you know, and, and see really, I think people really need a taste of all of the different things instead of being like, I'm going to go to shepherdess land and livestock they look really cute in the bucolic fields of Ojai. It's like, well, no, it's not always cute. And really to know this and to learn this, you need to go to other operations. And, and Absolutely. that's, that's how you really learn holistic context though, right? It's yes. being adaptive. Yes, yes, yes. And not one, one size does not fit all. And, and I think that not just trainees on the ground need to happen, but, uh, employees and yeah. uh, employers, employers need and mentors need training as well. And I think that's why the new agrarian apprenticeship program, uh, Covera's apprenticeship program is so awesome because it really supports mentors, um, producers as mentors for this next generation of agrarians. And 
I think that this model is going to be absolutely key to readying a new generation of land stewards on the land in agriculture period. Yeah, that's amazing. So I want, I want to respect your time. Um, while we wrap up, is there anything that, that we want, that you wanted us to talk to talk about that we didn't bring up? Oh gosh. <laughs> well, let's see. Yes. One of the things that I heard you ask in an interview with Sarah Banger was who are, do you have mentors or folks that have inspired you or yeah. have supported you along the way? And I appreciated that question because I think that it is absolutely key to recognize that we cannot do this in a silo. If we are going to change models, we need to do it in unison. Could you, could you explain that, the silo term? Because I think that's a relatively new term for some some of our listeners. What do you mean by that? A silo? Well, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you my context because I don't know actually where it came from. Um, a silo? Uh, we can't be in an echo chamber. Right. alone in the dark, trying yeah. to figure things out. We can't just rely on our partners or family members. We have to have a larger community. It is absolutely key. I am, I am doing something absolutely nuts here in Southern California, and I've been working my butt off to do it. And it is only because of the community that has supported me to get here that I'm here. So I think that it's absolutely crucial and key for me to share in this little moment of soapbox that I, myself and others who are embarking on wild journeys and grazing and on the land with animals, you have to have your community and hold them close because they need you just as much as you need them. And uh, I want to shout out to all of my dear, dear friends who've supported me along the way and gals of women in ranching and all of the awesome organizations like um, the No Regrets Initiative, Fiber Shed, uh, Beth Robinette with the new Cowgirl Camp, uh, uh, Amy and Jeremiah Square Mile Ranch, uh, Breath and Nomads at Ariel and Sam, um, gosh, Aaron, uh, Christine Sue, uh, I'm, there's like so many. I just, without my community, I wouldn't be here. Oh yeah, Guido Frassini, who is my 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 shepherd playmate out in Spain and France, and then all of my mentors and educators too. Um, takes we, a village. I'm yeah, it really you. does take a village. So I think that's the last thing I wanted to share is that yeah, you are not alone in this, if you've been in it for a long time, or you're just getting started, or you want to start, be humble and, and ask questions and bug us who people who are really busy. Like I really appreciate people who are incessant in keeping asking me over and over again, like I'm interested in this, like, can I help in this? And, you know, persistence actually, it, it can be annoying, but it also is like, I take people really seriously when they really have to. Yes, check absolutely. Down. 
I'm hard to track down. And it's not because I don't care. It's just because I am wearing 5 million hats and managing a lot. And so, um, you know, to your listeners, maybe just like try to wait like five minutes after you hear this, but I do invite you to reach out, get onto um, my business newsletter or grazing school, of the West newsletter. Were those? Or, uh, or, or, uh, what else? Uh, I mean, I got, I guess I got a lot of ways to get a hold of me. I'll make um, sure we, we put all that in the show notes, Brittany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got all the handles and all the things, um, reach out. And, um, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to offering more resources for folks to get into this. And in fact, I'm going to do a shout out and anyone who's looking to collaborate and put time into helping me in that endeavor, I would be thrilled to collaborate with someone to help um, make uh, these resources more readily available, most likely social media. Um, I, I could use some help in that realm. So um, I'm open to that and always open to collaboration. And um, thank you so much. This has been awesome. You two are doing such great work and I love this podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Keeps us going <laughs> to hear that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's important. And I, and I really, I really look forward to seeing how I can integrate pasture map into the industry of contract grazing because the tools are so crucial. We need the technologies to help us do our right. jobs efficiently, effectively. Communication is key. If we can use these tools, um, to make our lives easier, but also to improve uh, the ways we can make cash money doing it. Absolutely. Even That's- nonprofits need money, guys. Just oh, yeah. That. Oh, yeah. I mean, I hate to say it, but my altruism from like, I'm just going to walk around with a whole bunch of sheep and goats and just like gorilla graze is like, nah. I don't need much. It was like, no, 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 no. That's not me anymore. I am thinking about bottom line, and I'm also thinking about quality of life. Right. And- Team, but yeah, we got to make money, guys. If it's not profitable, nobody will do it. Yeah, and return on investment is not just cash. Yep. It, it, we need it, but there's a lot of different returns. And the more we can capture what those other returns are ecologically, socially, um, spiritually, physically, Absolutely. then we're really looking at the whole. Awesome. Awesome. I think that's a great place to go ahead and end it today. I think so too, y'all. Well, I'm out uh, going to go tend to a sheep that got bit in the face by a rattlesnake yesterday. Oh, fun. Yeah, live out on the range well, behind houses. <laughs> it's always it. something, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Have a really wonderful uh, weekend. And um, thanks, listeners. Thank you, Cole. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye, y'all.